Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right. Good morning, church. All right. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to continue through our series called No Other Gospel. And uh, I I just want to let you know um, real quick, uh, you are invited tonight to the Thanksgiving banquet. It's really just a it's a family meal. We are a family here, and if you're here, you're family, so uh, we would love to have a family Thanksgiving with you, so you're invited to that. But also, um, I do realize that I have a, a, a bit of sarcasm, and I, I do realize that I say things that get me in trouble quite often, and uh, sometimes it, it gets me really good gifts. Last week, I said uh, that Galatians 2.3 is a verse that you would not find on a coffee mug, and this morning, I was given a gift. Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. <laughs> Thank you, Hensons. That's awesome. So uh, sometimes sarcasm gets you in trouble. Sometimes it gets you really cool gifts. So there you go. Galatians, as we continue through this, uh, this series, it's been a very rich and deep series. And uh, we've been looking at this idea of grace. And grace is it's so hard to get. Siri can't even understand it. That's what she just said on my phone. I can't even understand what grace is. Um, grace is so big it's so um, out of this world that we can't grasp it with our, with our minds. We've kind of worked our way through this thesis statement, and um, maybe, maybe we worked through it. I don't think my uh, clicker's working today. Oh, they've got wires back there. So we, we have technical difficulties. Here, here it is. God's pleasure in you is not based on your performance for him. Rather, it is based on Christ's work on your behalf. So when we look at this, we think God's pleasure in me, there has to be something that I do. There has to be some quality in me that makes God love me. There has to be something that I've, I've earned or deserved for God to give me such a wonderful gift of grace. And the truth is, is that there is nothing that we can do and nothing we, that we will do that will earn that favor. But God has freely given us this grace through his son, Jesus Christ, and what he has done on our behalf. So why is it so hard to grasp? Why, why do we struggle with this? Well, because grace is unmerited favor. Grace is unearned and unearnable. Favor from God is by faith alone, not in response to any merit, nor as a reward of anything that we have done. We only deserve to be punished. We are, we are in our sins, and God's wrath is put on, upon sin. But Jesus Christ took our place on the cross and received God's wrath we do not deserve it. There's nothing we can do to deserve it. There's nothing we can do to earn it. And that's so hard for us to get. Why? Because how can something so expensive be given so freely? Grace is expensive. It is free to the recipient, but costly to the donor. It costs our Lord Jesus his life. Some may insult grace, reject it, trample on it, or even cheapen it, but that does not lower the infinite value of grace. Grace is so expensive. It cost Jesus Christ his very own life. As we've seen in Romans 6, 1 and 2, as we've gone through these last couple of weeks, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This is cheapening grace. It's saying, well, if God's going to be gracious to us, if, God, if there's nothing I can do, then I'm just going to live however I want. And that is not, that is not what a grace-filled life looks like. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer has said, I've quoted him several times. It's one of my favorite 
quotes. He coins the phrase cheap grace, and he says cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without the requirement of repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Cheap grace is where my only duty as a Christian is to leave the world for an hour or so on Sunday morning and go to church and be assured that all my sins, that my sins are all forgiven. I need no longer to try to follow Christ for cheap grace, the bitterest foe of discipleship, which true discipleship must loathe and detest, has freed me from that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived during uh, the Second World War, he writes this about discipleship. True discipleship, a life that is filled with the grace of God, looks different because of the presence of God, not because of following rules or, on the flip side, living like the world. True grace frees us from Christian duty and opens up our eyes to living as a delighted disciple of Jesus Christ. I ask you this morning, do you live as a delighted disciple? Have you come to a point in your life where it is a delight to walk with the Lord? Or do you feel like you're still trying to do a duty? There's still things I need to do. I'm trying really hard. I'm trying to be a better person. I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to earn God's favor. And if you're trying and trying and trying, you're going to be discouraged and you're going to get burned out because that is the opposite of grace. Why is gospel grace so hard to grasp? Because it goes against everything we have been taught. From day one, we were taught in a merit system in which acceptance is based on performance. Do this and you'll be, you will be rewarded. Fail to do this and you will be punished. It is so hard to believe that God would do something good for us when what we actually deserve is punishment. This was so hard for the rich young ruler. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18? This guy, he runs up to Jesus and the ruler asks him, Good teacher, what must I do? Do you get that? There's got to be something. There's got to be something I can do to earn favor. There's got to be something I can do to put me on, on your good side. There's got to be something. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I have kept from my youth. I was raised this way. I've been raised in this merit system. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard this, and he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. This is not something that Jesus calls every single one of us to do, to sell everything we have and give to the poor. No, it's something that reveals that this man believed that there was something that he could do to earn God's favor. And the truth is, you can't. You can't. It goes against everything that we've been taught and raised in. Grace is so hard to grasp because God's grace changes you when we think we need to change ourselves. We come and we believe there's something I can do. There's something that I must do to be a better person. And grace says, you can't. You can try and you can try and you can try and you will get burned out and you will be burdened and you will be heavy laden because you can't carry the law. You can't fulfill the law. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The good news of the gospel is this. We are saved by grace. We are changed by grace. And we are sustained by grace. Grace through faith. It's not by works so that no one can boast. It's hard to grasp. It's been really big, but I'm excited to get into chapter 3. So let me pray for us, and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for grace, unmerited favor, that there's nothing that we could do, and yet you freely give the gift. It is through you that we have righteousness. It's through you that we have hope. It's through you that we are sustained. It's through you, through you that we are justified and we have salvation. It's through you that we are able to do all things. God, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. God, reveal yourself to us through your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to do like I did last week and kind of break up the scriptures since we're covering so many. And the first section is this in 1 through 9. No other gospel emphasizes faith over faithful adherence. That may sound shocking, but as we get into this, you'll see that it's faith that makes you righteous, not faithful adherence. So he starts with this, O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed and crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foresees that God who justifies the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed among, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham was a man of faith. Abraham was called before he was ever in a faithful adherence. He says this, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul begins with this question. Did good works give you the Holy Spirit? No. So you didn't receive the Holy Spirit by being good. So the next question is going to be, then why do you think you sustain or keep the Holy Spirit by being good? Why do you think that the law does this? Does, he says this, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Do you think that God continues to work through you because you are so good? Or do you think he continues to work through you because you are good? Question two, does the power of the Spirit work in you through your ability to keep the law or through his ability to fulfill the law? See, what Paul is doing, he's tearing down this belief that there is something that I must do to be right with God. There's something I must bring to the table. There's something that God wants to be pleased with me in. And he's saying, look, God called you. God gave you his spirit by faith through grace. There is grace there that, that you didn't earn. So he takes Abraham as an example. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, he says, Now the Lord said to Abram, this is before he changed his name. Go from your country your to, uh, and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be bl a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. 
And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He goes on in chapter 15 of Genesis in 5 through 6. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham, here is an example that Paul uses to say, look, Abraham didn't do anything for God to make a covenant with him. He called him. He chose him. He brought him out and said, look, I'm going to make you a blessing and I'm going to bless you. And there's going to be an offspring that comes from you that will be a blessing to all people. It is about faith that you are now seen as righteous. So Abraham believed that God would do what he was helpless to do. He believed that God was able to do what he was helpless to do. Now, let's take that in today's framework. Do you believe that God has done and will do what you are helpless to do? You are helpless to live the Christian life apart from Jesus Christ. You are helpless to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and able to overcome sins that are in your life. You are helpless when it comes to these, but do you believe by faith that Jesus Christ has sustained you, that he has saved you, that he has sanctified you, and that he will continue to lead and guide you by this promise? Amen. He is able to do in you what you are incapable of doing for yourself. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by being good? No. So now you think that you're perfected by your ability to be good? No. Jesus Christ is at work. He's, I put this, or are you merely trying to appear better than you are to others, to yourself, and even to God? There's a chance that some of us, when we don't get grace, we, we try to look good. We try to act better, and we try to appear better than we really are so that we can fool others so that we can even fool ourselves and that we can sometimes think that we can fool God. Here's the truth. You can fool me. You can dress up nice. You can come in. You can play the game. You can say the Christian words. You can do all those things. You can fool those that are around you in the church. You can fool even some, maybe some family and some friends. But you can't fool God. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what, what goes through your mind. He knows that you're just trying and trying and trying. But my question is, do you believe that Jesus Christ can and will do something in you that you are hopeless and helpless to do on your own? That is the Christian life. Paul says this in Colossians 2, 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to those things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You can try to look good. You can try to follow rules. You can put yourself under the law, but it has no value when it comes to living, living the Christian life. Keeping rules and maintaining the religious appearance has no value in the power and, and production of righteousness. So where do you find power for living the Christian life? Romans 8, 11, Paul says this, For, uh, but it's the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead that dwells in you. 
He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. Paul says this, you want to have power to live the Christian life? Then there's the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells you. It's the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. 2 Corinthians 3.17 Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is power and there is freedom in living a life of promise with the Spirit. Where do you find pressure to live the Christian life? The pressure comes from the law. I better be good enough. I better look good enough. Paul says in Romans 7, 7 through 8, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Paul is saying this, look, the law reveals to you how sinful you really are. You didn't even know you were coveting until I told you you were coveting. And now that I've told you you're coveting, you're thinking, oh my gosh, I covet all the time. I didn't know. And then Jesus shows up and he goes through the Sermon on the Mount and he said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. And you're like, okay, I got that one. But I say, do not hold hate in your heart against a brother. Ooh, well, I have hated somebody. So you get to this point where you think, I can't do it. I cannot be good enough to live the Christian life. There's no power in me. It's impossible. I've been trying and I'm really frustrated and I just can't live the Christian life. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The thing is, if there was anything that you could have done to earn God's favor, Jesus Christ didn't have to come. But he had to come to fulfill the law because we can't. We can't do it. We can never be good enough. We can never produce enough. And we can never attain enough good to outweigh the bad. And yet some of us live the Christian life thinking, well, I need to do this to make up for what I did. I better do this so God will be happy with me. And we have this mindset of merit system when that's not what grace teaches. And so Jesus shows up in Matthew 4, 17. And from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. If you know you can't be good enough. If the law has revealed to you that, that you just, you're never going to measure up. Repent. And that word, mataneo, is not just a changed mind or a sorrowful feeling. So many times we say, yeah, I repented of that. I felt really bad about it. You were sorry. Repentance is a total reversal of one's previous attitudes, opinions, actions, and beliefs. Can I ask you this? When it comes to the sin that's in your life, has there been a complete reversal of your previous attitudes towards that sin, your opinions and your actions and your beliefs? Has there been a complete turnaround? That's repentance. There's a point where you say, I can't do it. Jesus, I need you. Have you come to that point in your life? Because if you haven't come to that point, you're still relying on yourself. You're lost. You're lost in religion. Those who live by the... Law, remain under a curse, is what he's going to say. Why do we not call on the name of the Lord? Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why do we not call out in repentance? 
Because we don't really want to be delivered from the sin. We just want to be forgiven. Can I say that again? Sometimes we don't call out in repentance because we don't really want deliverance from the sin. We just, don't, we just want to be forgiven. Sometimes we don't call out in repentance because we don't think we're really that bad because we do a really good job of following most of the law. I'm not as bad as the other, the other people. We don't call out in repentance because it's hard to admit in front of a room full of people that I've got sin in my life. No other gospel emphasizes faith over faithful adherence. Do you have faith? Have you come to a point in your life where you have totally surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? You can do it because I can't. That's the gospel. No other gospel emphasizes promise over production. Galatians 3, let's keep reading, 10 through 18. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk there. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So that has a lot of history there. Basically what happened was is that when the Abrahamic covenant was taking place, there was an animal that was killed. This is what you did in the covenant. You would cut an animal in half and you'd walk through and you walking through this dead animal would be like till death do us part, right? We're making a covenant. That's marriage language, covenant marriage language. Till death do us part. So we're going to walk through this together. But if you read carefully, Abraham falls asleep and God walks through and makes a covenant. It is God's covenant. I made a promise to you. It is not the law. The law does not annul or do away with the promise that I was given. The promise is that the offspring is coming. Jesus Christ is coming. The one that fulfills the law, the one that will make you righteous, the one that will lead and guide you, the one that will give you the spirit so that you can live the Christian life. This is the promise. The law does not bring the promise. The law exposes our need for the promise. Salvation begins by faith alone and is continued by faith alone. The promise of God produces the righteousness of God. He says there in verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Rely on. This is an interesting way to put this because so many people who believe in Jesus Christ still rely on their ability to live good, to be, to be good people. 2 Corinthians, Paul says this in 5.21, 
For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness cannot be found by relying on your own ability. Jesus is the promise. We rely on him and in him for righteousness. When you look back at Abram as, a, as an example, you see that God called Abram. Abram didn't call God. God covenants with Abram. God promises Abram, and then God fulfills his promise. God does every bit of it. It is grace that we do not deserve. So let me ask you, what do you rely on more? The ability to perform or the promise of Jesus? Many of us rely on our ability to perform and to look good and to act good. We focus so much on the law and we don't even realize it. We come to church hoping to hear how to be a better person, how to be a better husband, how to be a better wife, how to parent better, how to love God more, how to love others better, how to manage your time, how to learn how to do something that will make you feel like you're doing it. We want to be told, this is what you do. This is how you do it. This is what the Christian looks like. This is the ABC, how to be a Christian. Now go do it. Because we love the law. And yet the law keeps us under a curse. What do you rely on more? The ability to perform or the promise of Jesus? I love how J.D. Greer puts it. The gospel is not love God and do your best. The gospel is that you did your best and it wasn't enough. So God in his love sent his best who did for you what you could not do for yourself. And all you can do now is receive it by faith. This is the gospel. It's not a message about how to be a better person. It's not a 12-step program of how to be a Christian. It's none of that. It's you can't do it. That's why Jesus came. Have you put your faith in Jesus because he will live in and through you today if you allow him. God, I can't do it. I'm lost. I'm lost in religion. I'm lost because I think I need a leash. Now, the other day, uh, I say the other day, it's probably several months ago when it was warm, we have this little cute dog, okay, little Lucy, and she's a miniature schnauzer, and she's the best dog in the world, best dog I've ever had. And uh, we bought her for my daughter several years ago, but she's my dog, okay? She follows me around with her little nails, like, everywhere I go. Uh, I, I go to take a shower, and she just stands by the shower door, like, just waiting on you to come out. So, you know, so this dog, she loves me. So we decided to take her on a walk in the Greenway. And so, you know, if you go on the Greenway, there are rules, okay? Put your dog on a leash, right? You even, it's even spray painted on the, on the walkway, like dog with a leash. So we put the dog on the leash, and she's like, <laughs> like just trying to get, you know, like, she's like, <laughs> and I'm like, you're choking yourself, stop. <laughs> and she's trying to get away, and she's trying, I was like, man, she wants to bolt. She wants to run. She sees freedom. And so we're, we're just, you know, walking the greenway, and we get to the dog park. And so I was like, oh, she's going to love this. We're going to unhook her, and she's just going to be like, Phew, and she's going to run and say hi to all the other dogs. And then I'm going to have to be like, don't fight, you know, and all these things. And so, uh, so we get there, and I, I take the leash off, and I go, and I sit down on the, uh, on the little park bench. And Lucy runs over, and she jumps up, and she sits right next to me and goes, what are we doing? And I was like, Go play. And she just sat there. She didn't leave my side. She didn't run. She didn't play. Now, I think it's because she thinks she's a human. But, you know, she just sat there. We, we want the leash because the leash is safe. Have you ever asked, 
how far is it too far to go before it's a sin? How far can I get without getting away from you? And we constantly live our Christian lives thinking, how far can I go without being lost? How far can I go without being gone? And we want the leash because the leash is there and it holds us, it pulls us back. And we're choking ourselves trying to get away from it. I got to get away from him. But here's, here's the truth of the gospel, grace. You've been freed. And when you understand the love of the Father, you just want to curl up next to him and sit there. I don't want to run. I don't want to continue in sin. There has been a complete repentance in my life. I no longer have the same behavior and attitudes and actions. I no longer feel the way that I used to. There has been such a radical change in my life that I no longer want to run from God. Living in gospel grace is not living carelessly. It is living fully aware and fully dependent upon grace and the promise of Jesus' life in us and through us. The life that is fully dependent upon keeping the law and trying to produce results will only see the increase of sin, shame, and bondage. I hurt for many of us because we are so dependent. We rely so much on what we can do to be good. And all you know is shame. God must be upset with me. All we know is how sinful we really are because that's what the law does. It shows us how sinful we are. And we, we don't know it, but we're in bondage. We have a leash. And we can't figure out the relationship. No other gospel emphasizes faith, freedom. I don't have time this morning to read all of these verses with you. But I want you to see this. Grace is not a moral improvement program. It's not about rule keeping or checking off boxes. It's not about being nice to others and getting our relationships and problems fixed so that we can have a successful life. No, grace is our means of salvation through faith and the ability to live in true freedom. Do you know the freedom of Christ? Back up in verse 14, he says, So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Having the Holy Spirit changes everything. The Spirit-filled life is a changed life. Have you received the promised Spirit through faith? Now, I know we're Baptist. Well, some of us. Not all of us. And when I talk about the Spirit, you get a little uneasy because you know I went to a Church of God college, right? Have you come to a point where your walk with Jesus Christ is empowered by his presence in your life and not simply following what a Christian looks like? A spirit-filled life is a changed life. Again, Romans 8.11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, if, get that, if the spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, don't you think you're going to be changed? Don't you think there's going to be some power there? He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There is a newness of life for those who walk in the spirit. There is freedom 
1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Grace is expensive. And it is freely given to us. God's very presence is given to us. So here's the question. If it's true that the Spirit of God dwells in us and that our bodies are the Holy Spirit's temple, then shouldn't there be a huge difference between the ones who have the Spirit of God living inside them and the ones who do not? Shouldn't it be obvious when you're filled with the Spirit? And I don't mean just on Sunday morning. I don't mean that you raise your hand. I mean that throughout the week that the fruit of the Spirit is so evident in your life. I can't do it. I can't live the Christian life. Jesus says, I know. That's why I came. John 14, 15 through 17, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I, I, I want to love you, but I keep failing. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I know you can't do it. That's why I'm going to give you a helper. Another here literally means another just like me. I'm going to give you another just like me. Jesus in you. Christ in you. The hope of glory. I will be your helper. I want to end with this as I move us into a time of response. Francis Chan in his book, Forgotten God, talking about the Holy Spirit, he says this about Christians. It seems like this is mostly head knowledge to us and that we have not owned it. It has not really made much of a difference in our lives to the degree that if we woke up tomorrow and discovered that it is not true, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Most likely, our lives wouldn't look much different. Let me ask you, does your life look different because of the presence of the Holy Spirit? Or are you simply following rules? You don't need a leash. You just need God's grace. If you don't know him, I'll be down here. I'd love to talk to you. Grab me after service. There's no special walking the aisle. There's nothing like that. But if you want to repent today, if you want to bow, if you want to make your pew a, a place where you bend your knee and you cry out to God, God, I need you because I can't do it. I'm, I'm worn out. Then please, please respond. It's my prayer that you respond however the Spirit is leading you. Maybe you sing, maybe you bow, maybe you stand, maybe you sit, maybe, maybe you grab somebody and ask them to pray with you. I don't know what it is. But God's grace is so good. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons each week.